we've been seeing in Matthew chapter 5, that we have every reason to be rejoicing in God's provision and in His grace. And we've been going through the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 10. And seeing the multitudes, He went up on a mountain, and when He was seated, His disciples came to Him. Then He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire that our hearts would not only submit to it, but Father, find the rejoicing, the happiness, the the blessing of uh, those who seek to walk according to your uh, principles. We recognize we cannot do this in our own strength. And uh, what a humbling thing it is to recognize we can only love because you first loved us and you shed abroad in our hearts the love of the Lord Jesus. We can only achieve the very things that you enable us to achieve. And yet, Father, it, 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 it pleases us as well that even through our salvation, through everything that we do, you receive the honor and the glory. And that is the passion of our life, that uh, the pride of man would be humbled and your honor and your glory would be lifted up. So we pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word and uh, that you would uh, bless this, your people, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been seeing that the Beatitudes are God's call to enjoy kingdom living to the fullest. As the Westminster Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Uh, Billy Sunday, who's not exactly known for his Reformed faith, did say something right, though. Uh, He said that if we are losing the joy of the Lord in our lives, there's a leak in our Christianity somewhere. And I think this beatitude shows one of the biggest leaks that I've discovered anyway in many Christians' lives. Instead of being happy and joyful in their Christianity, uh, they are miserable and they are bitter. And as a result of being bitter, uh, they don't feel like extending mercy to other people, which makes other people react against them even more, which makes them have even more negative emotions and less likely to extend mercy. And it's a downward spiral into misery. And as we're going to be seeing, it's not just our flesh that we're contending with here. We're contending with the world. We're contending with the devil who takes advantage on this very issue of uh, mercy. And so I want us to really pay attention to this beatitude. All of these beatitudes really are keys to happiness in kingdom living. Really, literally every one of these could be translated happy are happy, happy, happy all the way through. He desires us to have uh, a true fulfillment in our Christian life. Now, before we get to an exposition of what this does mean, I want to first of all deal with what it does not mean. Uh, There is an interpretation very common of this, especially in Roman Catholic circles, uh, that's almost guaranteed to rob you of your joy because, like one of the commentaries in um, in my shelves says, a very messed up commentary, but it says, the only way that we will be able to be justified is if we persevere in these acts of mercy. And the implication is that somehow our mercy contributes toward our justification. And nothing could be further from the truth because we've seen in verse 3, when we come to God, we come as poor beggars. There's different words for beggar, but the word that's used there is the poorest of the poor, the person who doesn't even know where his next meal is going to come from. He has nothing in his hands to offer. He can't offer up mercy to God so that God will then show mercy to him. He has nothing to come. But 
When he comes as a poor beggar, God gives him what? Gives him the kingdom of heaven. He's a king. He has all of the resources of heaven, which includes this mercy that he's now going to be extending to other people. So the very thing we are told to offer to others is something we can receive uh, from the kingdom of heaven. And yet, they will argue with you, and they'll respond and say, okay, well, sure, God's grace starts the process, but you still have to continue that process if you're going to be finally justified, and you could fall away uh, from that justification. They say, what could be more clear? Blessed are the merciful, for they, and only they, shall obtain mercy. Is that not teaching salvation by grace plus works? Uh, Does that not... Uh, indicate that our works of mercy contribute to our justification. Well, never mind that the word justification is not used here, and never mind that Paul uh, explicitly excluded works uh, from in any way contributing to that justification. Uh, This is their uh, interpretation, and in some way it's indicating that, yes, grace starts it, it continues it, it finishes it, but in some way our works merit God's justification. My quick response, and we'll be responding throughout this whole sermon in some ways, but my quick response is if you look at Christ's interpretation of this beatitude, you'll see that he is talking to people who are already sons of God, and he's telling these sons of God that they need to engage in acts of mercy. For example, in verse 45, Jesus speaks of God as your father. Verse 47 speaks of your brethren. Verse 48 speaks of your father, and then he continues to encourage them to be praying to a loving heavenly father who loves to bestow things in their lives. And then the Roman Catholic will say, yeah, okay, but look at the next verses. It says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so they bring this argument in again. What's going on here? And Reformed people would say, that it really is the difference between facing God as a judge against who needs mercy, you know, enemies who need mercy, and facing God as a father who has to discipline his wayward children. See, it's not just at the beginning of our Christian walk. When we cease being enemies, we become children that we need mercy. Uh, We need mercy every day of our lives. That's why uh, Lamentation says that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. That's why David says in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In other words, he's got a security in the Lord. He's not doubting his salvation, but he knows every day he needs mercy. It's got to follow him the whole of his life. So we're not talking about pagans becoming sons. That's what happened in verse 3, the very first beatitude. We realize there's nothing we can offer to God, not even our mercy, Uh, In fact, the mercy that we're going to be bestowing is a resource that we receive as kings who can lay claim to the treasury of heaven. Remember, we've been blessed, Ephesians 1, 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every, every blessing. We already have it. It's ours. We have the kingdom. By faith, we need to live in terms of that and then begin to live that out. That's what he's calling us to do in the rest of the Beatitudes. And so if you take them in the order that they're giving... Uh, you'll see we cannot earn our salvation. God's grace is given in in the first beatitude, verse 3. And then as we grow, we begin to recognize, wow, there's a whole lot more sins than I realized that I had. And so it leads us to mourning over our sin, repenting over our sins. Makes us willing then to be tamed by God. The word meek we saw was a word that's used of a tamed stallion or a tamed lion or something like that. And so we're willing to be tamed and trained by our God. In, in effect, we're saying, I'm a lot worse, you know, skater. We use the analogy of skating in the Olympics. A lot worse skater than I realized that I am. And so I need to go uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to train me. Verse 5. And in turn, as he trains us, we begin to hunger to be more and more like him. Verse 6. And since our heavenly trainer is a merciful God, we long to be merciful as well, verse 7. Now, in your outlines, I give some other proofs that this really cannot be dealing with um, uh, our, our uh, earning God's justification. I'm going to skip over points B 
and C. But let me just point out one little thing in point D. And that is in the Scripture, you're always going to notice the order grace and mercy. Not mercy and grace. It's grace and mercy because you've got to deal with the problem of sin before you can, that's grace, before you can deal with the penalty of sin. That's mercy. Uh, You have to have grace to deal with guilt before you can have mercy to deal with misery. And so I'll leave you to study that on your own sometime, but I don't think in any way this is talking about pagans becoming Christians or even people trying to persevere in uh, justification. He's talking to true believers who are seeking to live out the grace that they've already been saved by. Now, that's precisely what confuses many people. So Roman numeral 2, let's look at some examples of true believers who have misery. Okay, they, they have misery, not happiness, and they have misery precisely because they do not extend mercy to other people. Uh, look, first of all, at Matthew 6 and verses 14 through 15. This is the verse that the Roman Catholic earlier threw against us and say, what about this? For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now he's talking to believers because we're praying our Father who art in heaven. Verse 11 says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What he is saying is why should God be merciful in his discipline in your life if you are utterly unmerciful in your dealings with your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is what was happening in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul told them, because of the meanness of spirit that you have toward each other, your lack of mercy in your dealings with each other, Uh, I'm bringing discipline. He says, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. So he's saying, when there's a lack of mercy in your hearts to each other, God has no mercy in his discipline. Some of you have gotten sick. Some of you have even died in this congregation precisely because of your lack of mercy toward each other. Now, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. And this is, I think, a very interesting passage, especially with regard to our warring against Satan, where he can take advantage of us when we lack mercy. And let's begin reading at verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, forgiveness is one way of showing mercy. And so he's basically saying, okay, how radical do I have to be in mercy? I know you've told us you've got to forgive your brother seven times if they in one day ask for forgiveness seven times. But he said, can I quit there? How radical do I have to be in giving mercy? And Jesus gives his answer to Peter. This is Peter's problem. This is not just a generic problem. This is Peter's. Verses 22 and following. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me. I will pay you all. And he would not, but it went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. 
Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And by the words, way, the words uh, compassion and pity, same Greek word uh, as the word for mercy in our beatitude here. His master was angry, <clears throat> delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, Roman Catholics have tried to turn this into a proof text for purgatory, where you're going to burn for however many thousand years till you've paid for the debts that you've given. But this really has nothing whatsoever to do with an afterlife. This has to do with the misery Christians experience in life. This is talking about while they're still living. And yes, Christians can be miserable. I know lots of Christians who are miserable. They're miserable with themselves. They're miserable with everybody else. They make everybody miserable, okay? They've lost the joy of the Lord. And, and I think they've lost it because it's been short-circuited on this beatitude. Now, let's clarify a couple of things in this passage. First of all, Jesus is not talking about hypocrites or people who truly are not saved. His answer is given to Peter about his question, how much should I forgive my brothers and sisters in Christ? Okay, he's talking about believers here. Verse 33, he says it's a fellow servant who's received God's mercy. Verse 35 repeats the idea. He's talking about a spiritual family. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses so it's talking about torment that believers go through in life now the second interesting thing about this passage is the word that he uses there for torturers or tormentors as some translate it in verse 34 this is a word that's used elsewhere to describe demons very interesting Matthew 4, verse 24, Matthew 8, 6, Revelation 9, 5, Revelation 11, verse 10. I think he's deliberately using a play on words here so that they immediately catch the point. So here is this master. The master has turned this servant over to the torturers, and Jesus says, you know, your heavenly Father is going to do exactly the same thing with you if you are not merciful with each other. He's going to turn you over to the torturers. What's he saying? Well, I believe that he is saying that Satan will have access to your life to afflict you and to put you into bondage. He will hand you over to uh, demons until you begin to learn, hey, I need to walk with mercy toward uh, each other. Now, I can immediately hear the response that some people will give. Hey, that just cannot possibly be because 1 John 5.18 says, that everyone who's born of God, the wicked one, cannot touch him. I say, no, you've misquoted that. There's a little qualifier in there. It says everyone who is born of God keeps himself, or it's actually the ongoing tense, and if you look at the margin, the literal rendering is guards himself. That implies there's opposition from Satan, and he's guarding himself. So while he's guarding himself, the wicked one cannot touch him. But if you're not guarding yourself... What happens is that Satan can gain access, he can come in, and he can begin to frustrate the daylights out of your life. And this is what the demons are all about. They are torturers. They are tormentors. They want to afflict you. And what he's saying is you will not have any power over Satan until you deal with this issue of mercy. I've had people in my office who have had misery for years, and a couple of the times, it's been rather remarkable, even some of the demonic manifestations, and they were like, whoa, had, they didn't even have any idea that there were demons that were present. Had this happened to me one time where uh, demonic manifestation came, but as they confess their sins, they renounce their sins, they renounce the legal ground that Satan has given, renounce the demons, almost instantaneously they've been freed from miseries that they have endured for years. And they unnecessarily were enduring it for years and years on end. So he's very literally saying that when you refuse to live by this beatitude, in addition to other miseries you can have from your own flesh and from the world, you're going to have miseries from Satan. He can mess around with you. And there's all kinds of scriptures that talk about this. 
And uh, if you're not uh, aware of this principle, I strongly recommend you start reading that um, book that the session gave to you as a gift in January. Uh, it's just volume one of the modern translation of, um, yeah, what's it called, Rodney? Uh, Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall. It's an incredible, incredible book, but uh, boatloads of information. But let me just give you a, a couple of examples. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27, says that we give, quote, place to, unquote, the devil when we have unresolved anger in our lives. That uh, literally means you give a foothold to Satan. It's almost like Satan gets his foot in the door when you have unresolved anger. Literally, he says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath nor give place uh, to the devil. So what's going on there? Well, he is, he is saying that you, you might think, what's the big deal? I have a right to be angry. Those people are, have been really mad at me, I mean, bad to me. I have a right to be mad. But he says, no. If you have unresolved anger, automatically you're giving Satan legal ground and you can pray against him all you want. You can say, Lord, I want your mercies financially. I want your mercies in terms of healing. I want your mercies and other things. And I want you to come against Satan because I can see that Satan's coming against <clears throat> me in my life. Well, all this demon has to do is look up and say to, to God, like, I've got legal ground here, don't I? And God says, yep, you don't have to leave. Uh, you cannot have power over the evil one. You've given place to the devil when you have unresolved anger in your life. And there's all kinds of other dangers from Satan as well. Uh, I do not believe, just for your information, that uh, Christians can be possessed. Okay, But James says that our tongue can be set on fire by hell. James 3, verse 6. What he's saying there is you can give Satan opportunity to use your tongue if you're not guarding yourself. You know, even a saint like Peter, well, he did have a few rough edges too, but uh, here, here's an apostle. Satan used Peter's tongue to tempt Jesus not to go to the cross. In fact, Peter rebukes Christ, of all things. I mean, the audacity. But he rebukes Christ. You can't go to the cross. Far be it from you, Christ. And Christ looks at him, and he sees Satan using him as a vehicle. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And so here is a person who is being, his tongue at least, is being used. And Scripture indicates other parts of our body, he calls them members of our body, can be given into slavery to Satan. One of the purposes that preachers and elders are given is to bring the word to bear in the members' lives if peradventure God might rescue them from their bondage to Satan. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians indicate some of the believers there had given ground to demons, and he says because they were ignorant of his devices. They're ignorant of the way Satan works. That's why some of them were weak and some were sick. Some had even died. And you start tracing through the Scriptures this principle and you begin to realize that automatically we give demons legal ground to torment us emotionally, physically, socially, and in other ways when we lack a merciful attitude. Bitterness is almost like a handlebar that's on your back. A demon can grab a hold of that and, you know, just manipulate you and move you around when you're not willing to relinquish that bitterness. But you get rid of it, you confess it, it's like he, he can't hold on to you. There's no handlebar that he can get you with. James 5.16 says that we need to renounce these, script, uh, these sins. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. You may not have ever thought about this before, but some of the miseries that you're going through emotionally, financially, physically, and in other ways might be related. You've got to at least consider it as a possibility. Satan's not the only enemy. The world is too, and our flesh is too. But you at least need to consider, has Satan take advantage, uh, taken advantage of me? Christ makes it very clear here that God's mercy is conditioned upon our willingness to be merciful, not in terms of salvation. It has nothing to do with that, but in terms of our relationships with each other. And he brings loving discipline until we come to the place where we're willing to pursue the lifestyle of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful 
for they shall obtain mercy. So right while I've been preaching this morning, God's Spirit might have been bringing conviction to you about somebody that you're holding out on. And you know exactly who that might be. It might be somebody who's asked you for forgiveness, but you still harbor hurt and hate against them. Or it might be somebody who's never asked for forgiveness, but you still harbor hurt and hate against them. Just realize you're not helping yourself. You're not helping that other person. In fact, you're giving Satan legal ground. You've got to get rid of it. Just take it out of your life. Do not allow it to be uh, something that can bring misery into you. Matthew 5 says that you need to be so uh, serious about this that right when you've brought your sheep to the altar and you're just getting ready to sacrifice it and the Spirit brings conviction that somebody's got something against you, he said, stake your sheep down, don't even sacrifice it, go get reconciled to your brother. So whether you're at fault, Matthew 5, or whether somebody else is at fault, Matthew 18, he says, this is how seriously you've got to take your relationship of mercy uh, with each other. And there have been some people take this very literally. Right in the middle of a service, the Spirit convicts them, and they go up to a brother or sister, and they tap them on the shoulder, and they say, hey, would you come out with me? I need to talk to you because I want to ask your forgiveness. And they get reconciled, and they come back, and they take communion. And then you're not eating to judgment, you're eating to blessing. There's only two ways you can partake of the Lord's table. It's either to judgment or it's to blessing. 1 Peter 3, 7 indicates um, that when husbands do not have an attitude of mercy toward their wives, God will not hear their prayers. They may be asking for mercies. Lord, give me financial mercies. Give me mercies in terms of my relationship with, with people at work. They, they may be praying for mercies, and God said, I'm not going to listen to you. Just quit praying. I'm not going to listen to you. Until you start acting with mercy toward your wife, your prayers are hindered. Do you get the point? Now, we could go through all kinds of other miseries, and I'm not going to take the time to do it. I wanted to give just enough so you can get a good handle, a, a feel for this. this is very, we've got to take this very literally. If you're not showing mercy, if you don't have a disposition of mercy, God's not going to show you mercy in terms of His disciplines in your life. So if you want mercy from His spanking stick, show mercy. Now let's quickly take a look at Christ's exposition of this beatitude. And that is, and remember how we saw that the beatitudes are the outline in reverse order it's a, a chiasm, it's a very common Hebrew thing, but it's the outline in reverse order of the of the Sermon on the Mount. And I've given the outline there for you. So chapter 5, verse 38, through chapter 6, verse 4, is his specific exposition of this. And we're going to begin at verse 38. But let me begin by saying, nowhere does the New Testament contradict the Old Testament. Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament. Otherwise, he'd be contradicting what he said earlier Uh, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And that was an Old Testament case law of the bird, mother bird, and the daughter bird. He is not contradicting the Old Testament. What he's doing is he's contradicting the Pharisees' interpretation of the Old Testament. So he's going to be giving, here is the Pharisees' interpretation, now here is the right interpretation of the Old Testament. Anytime he quotes the Old Testament, he says, it is written. Anytime he quotes the oral traditions of the Pharisees, he says, you have heard it said. Now, let's take a look at then, beginning at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that phrase actually is in the Old Testament, but never in the Old Testament was that phrase applied to an individual person. It was always applied to the state. This was intended to be a civil law. It was the lex talionis. The state was required to render God's civil justice. That's what the eye for an eye and a tooth for. It's equivalency. You gouge out an eye, there has to be the equivalent to that eye that is being paid for. Now, the Pharisees, they didn't want to mess around with God's method of using God's civil courts. It took too long. And many times you didn't get justice. And sometimes you didn't have the required witnesses to be able to handle that. So they said, you know what? 
That's God's justice, and we're going to use an eye for an eye, even if we can't use the courts. And so if somebody does something bad to me or hits me, I'm going to get even. I'll look for a time when I can get even. And uh, they misused this civil law to instruct people on how to do that. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. This is not a law for the individual. Romans 12 and 13, you might write in the margin, has the same balance uh, because Romans 12 says, do not take vengeance into your own hands for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And he gives a whole bunch of ways to show mercy. That's Romans chapter 12. He says, you cannot take vengeance into your own hands. Then in chapter 13, he says that the state is God's minister of vengeance. So it's not as if we can't go through the state. Yeah, you can go through the state and take vengeance. Absolutely. But it's the state that has that requirement rather than the other. Now, you get Romans 12 and Romans 13 mixed up, you're going to have all kinds of problems. If individuals start applying Romans 13, you're going to get terrorism. You're going to get all kinds of problems. Now, you get the state trying to live by Romans 12, you're going to get modern health care, and you're going to get all kinds of crazy things coming out of Washington, D.C., because they're trying to show mercy when God calls them to exercise lex talionis. Romans 13 was intended for the state. Romans 12 was intended for the individual. So going on, Matthew 5.39. He's going to be giving this kind of an exposition. I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now, you cannot yank that out of context like some people have done to just advocate total pacifism. He is talking about resisting, what's the paragraph header, with lex talionis. You cannot use lex talionis. You cannot take vengeance into your own hands. Now, he's not saying you can't pray against Satan. That'd be one kind of resisting of evil, wouldn't it? He's not saying that you cannot resist ungodly civil laws. John the Baptist did. Jesus did. Paul did. In fact, we've got a, an obligation, I think, to resist ungodly civil laws. He is not saying that you cannot defend your family against a murderer or against a rapist. We're commanded to do so. The context is only saying do not resist evil with the lex talionis. That is the responsibility of the magistrate. So let's, let's just give a couple of illustrations of how this might look like. You know a neighbor has stolen something, but you can't prove it. You don't have the two or three witnesses. You don't have what it takes to be able to prove that he has stolen something in the court. So you say, there's no way I can go to court and prove this. I'm going to be a Robin Hood. Next time he goes on vacation, we're going to go in and clear out his house and give it to the poor. Okay? And Jesus said, you can't do that. It's not your prerogative to do that. Or there's another person that you did have witnesses and you took him to court, he was a murderer. And the court let him off scot-free. It was so clear that this person was a murderer. Boy, are you ticked off. And you're saying, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, and and you, you can't appeal. There's nothing you can do about it. So you say, okay, we're going to get a lynch mob together and we're going to string this guy up in the nearest tree because he has to have justice. And Jesus says, no. It is not your place to take lex talionis into your hands. What you have to do when the the state does not give justice, you have to pursue mercy with all your heart. Now, the Pharisees, they were big into lynch mobs. In fact, uh, they knew they couldn't get something through the courts. No big deal. They just hire a a gang of thugs to corner somebody and uh, stone them to death. Caiaphas did this numerous times in his life. In fact, that's how he ended his life. It's uh, God's justice coming back. Now, they cornered him finally down in an alley and uh, gave him uh, his, uh, uh, his, his desserts. But what Jesus is saying, you cannot operate like the Pharisees are. They're mishandling the Word of God. If you cannot get justice, you must pursue mercy, not only for their benefit, it's for the benefit of your own heart, so you don't get bent out of shape. Let's keep going on. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now again, this has nothing whatsoever to do with protecting yourself from attack. Let's say somebody's coming and he's punching, he's pummeling you. Of course, fight back. 
The Bible commands you to fight back. It has nothing to do with protecting yourself. This phrase here was a technical term for an insult. Okay? The only way a right-handed person can slap you on the right cheek is with a backhanded slap like that. Okay? You're, you're slapping him across the cheek. Some of you have probably seen some of the old movies where, you know, they, they <clears throat> um, would challenge each other to duels in France, and they would take their glove off, and they would slap a person on the face with that glove. Everybody knew what that meant. You are challenged to a duel, right? That's exactly what was going on in this passage with that backhanded slap. They were about to take this person on, and Jesus says, you cannot do that. That is not a proper biblical understanding of the law of God. In fact, it's interesting, in America, dueling finally became outlawed precisely by an appeal to this passage right here. They, they knew this is ungodly. This is murder. It is not biblical justice. Biblically, we're required to go through the courts. And the courts are required to give justice. But uh, if we can't get justice, he says, pursue mercy. Now, here's the way Romans 12 words it. Repay no one evil for evil. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But then in the very next chapter, he says, Hey, but you can go after him, tongs and hammer through the courts. You know, biblical justice has got a jurisdictional limit. And if you can't get justice there, show mercy. Okay, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now, Jesus is not saying you cannot fight a wrongful suit. Paul fought a wrongful suit. Jesus rebukes someone for a wrongful action against him. So if this is a legitimate lawsuit against you, how does this relate to mercy and how does it relate to the lex talionis uh, principle here? Well, I think Jesus is saying that you cannot use technical loopholes in the law to get out from paying that which you owe. And I think there's a couple of oral traditions of the Pharisees that may have been in the background of his mind here. I'm not going to be dogmatic on this, but I think that this is in the background here. I have in my footnotes here a couple of quotes from the Talmud, which is the later putting down into print of all of these Pharisaical oral traditions that basically say, finders keepers, losers weepers, okay, which was a violation of the Old Testament. I've got another quote here that uh, basically says, hey, if your ox gores a, a Jew, yeah, you have to pay him restitution, but if your ox gores a Gentile, uh, you don't have to, to pay him on that. There were various technical ways in which they got around the law, but because of the word that he uses here for the outer cloak, I think it's a second issue probably that's being appealed to, and that was that the Pharisees loved to appeal to a specific law to get out, circumvent uh, true justice. But even if it wasn't that, in the Old Testament, there was a provision that a poor person, you could not take away his outer cloak. You could take away everything else, but that was the thing that he kept warm with uh, at night. You could not take that away. And Jesus is saying, okay, even if technically you can get out from paying what you owe to that other person who is suing you, don't do it. Even if it means your discomfort, get rid of your cloak if it takes that. If you owe it to him, pay him it. Pay it to him. Continuing in verse 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, this is not talking about a robber who's holding you up at gunpoint. Okay, this is not talking about helping a little old lady across the street with her groceries or anything like that. The word for compels means to press into service or to conscript, and it was only used to government officials. Now, this was another very irritating law, this time a Roman law, not a Jewish law which allowed soldiers to impress anyone into service and to carry a load for them for one mile. The Romans put a limit on it so it wouldn't be abused too much. And what Jesus is saying here, okay, they can legally do this. By the way, I should, I should say, you see an impress gang coming down the road, 
perfectly appropriate to hightail it into the bush so you don't get caught, okay? <laughs> but let's say the dragoons catch you, and uh, they're forcing you to carry this load for a mile so that you're not overcome with bitterness. He says, you know, at the end of that mile, say, I know you've got to take this load uh, further. I, I, I don't mind carrying it for another mile for you. He's saying, that way you are not conquered. You're the one who's in charge. In fact, this principle of going the extra mile, uh, I've got a booklet that applies that to business, and he shows example after example of people who go the extra mile, even with people who don't deserve it, and shows how God blesses them and blesses them over and over again in terms of their business uh, prosperity. It's a, it's a wonderful principle. Okay, uh, verse 42, Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, keep in mind, he's, he's, he's still giving an exposition of the misuse of the lex talionis in verse 38. So he's telling you to show mercy even to people who don't deserve it. They deserve the very opposite. You feel like kicking them into the ditch. Like Romans 12 says, repay no one evil for evil. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him to drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And uh, by the way, he's quoting the Old Testament there. Now, just in case you think, wow, that, how, how do we apply this to the present? It's very applicable to the present. Let me tell you a story. My pastor, uh, when we were going to seminary in, in California, uh, um, uh, Dick Kaufman, wonderful, wonderful guy, when he first moved into his house, there was a bitter old lady next door. And they moved into their house. They thought, let's get to know our neighbors and let's invite them to dinner and let's do different things with them. And this lady, boy, she was meaner than snakes. She was grouchy. She was just uh, really hard to get along with. And I think this, this one time, the kids had baked, it was either a cake or a pie, and they had brought it over to her. And she was so snarly and growly about it and and just acting like, you know, what's in this for you? How are you manipulating, you know? And, and it hurt the kids' feelings. And they came back with tears, you know, talking to their parents. And their parents said, you know what? Don't allow somebody else's bad attitudes to take the joy out of giving. You're doing this for the Lord. Let's continue to persevere. So they would continue to um, do things. But it was just hard for these kids. So the dad sat them down at the table and he says, Let's read Romans chapter 12. And he get all of these things. When people uh, curse you, you bless them. Don't return tit for tat. And then it ends by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're going to overcome this lady. We're going to declare a war of love on this lady. Let's strategize. What can we do to try to conquer her? And so the kids came up with all kinds of ideas. And uh, they knew that uh, she was, uh, uh, you know, having a real difficult time mowing the lawn. So they mowed the lawn for her. She showed them nothing but contempt. They baked a cake for her, or baked something for her. I wasn't sure if it was a cake. She showed nothing but contempt. They wrote cards. Uh, when they would see her in the street, they would be cheerful, and they would uh, uh, say nice things to her. And eventually, I don't know how long it took, but God broke her heart where she came to a place where she said, nobody has ever shown such love to me. You wonder why, <laughs> you know. But it, she was just blown away. Here's a situation where people are giving and cheerfully giving and giving when everybody else would be tempted to give lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. She treats me meanly, I'll treat her just as meanly. You understand the lex talionis there? We're given the same. that she's, They didn't do that. They were showing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. She broke, and she eventually became a transformed Christian. You can see Christ is being radical when he advocates mercy. He's asking us to be merciful when everyone else would be tempted to take vengeance. And when you start overcoming evil with good by giving mercy... God will pour out more and more and more mercy into your life. Second way, Christ shows us how to extend mercy is by loving the unlovable. Let's start reading at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you will never find that in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor, yes. Hate your enemy, no. 
You won't find that. You will find it in the Talmud, but not in the Old Testament. Talmud's their interpretation. The Old Testament called the Israelites to love their enemies. That's a fascinating thing. I've got a list of verses this long that talks about love the Egyptian, love the stranger, love your, if your enemy's ox uh, is lost or his donkey is lost, he says, don't neglect it. Grab the donkey. Bring it back to your neighbor. You shall love your enemies. Here's another one. Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head and the Lord will reward you. Sounds kind of like something we read in the New Testament, wasn't it? Well, see, the New Testament's just interpreting the old. It's giving. That's what Paul was doing and what's what Jesus was doing. Giving the right interpretation. Now, let's keep going. Verse 44 and following. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's saying, you want to demonstrate to the world that you're, you are sons? You got to show the ability to do more than pagans can do. Okay, so he goes on. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And there's many stories that can be told on the incredible power of showing mercy in this way. I want to tell you a story, and I have to admit it's because of lack of time. I couldn't... um, I think of a better one, but uh, Corey Ten Boom, I've uh, given this to you, but I love this story. She recounts how years after she had been released from the concentration camp in Germany, she was giving a conference and recounting some of the things that had happened to her. At the end, she sees one of the former prison guards coming up to her, and this was a guard that had particularly treated her and Betsy incredibly meanly, one of the worst of the guards. And she just intuitively recognized what was going to happen. And she said, Lord, how do I escape? How do I get out of here? She did not want to meet with this guy. And sure enough, he comes up and tells her, you know, the Lord quite some time ago has forgiven me. But I want you to forgive me as well. So he reaches out his hand and he says, would you forgive me? And here's what she writes. I stood there with coldness clutching at my heart. But I know that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I prayed, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into one stretched out to me, and I experienced an incredible thing. The current started in my shoulder, raced down into my arms, and sprang into our clutched hands. Then this warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner. I've never known the love of God so intensely as I did at that moment. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That was what was happening to her. She was obtaining mercy. God was pouring into her life something she couldn't do in herself. She was experiencing God's supernatural, and God calls us to such radical mercy that we ourselves are transformed. I mean, these kinds of acts of mercy that we've been talking about go way beyond the realm of the natural, okay? They go into the realm of the Spirit of God. In fact, I think that's one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to get us to quit trying, you know, to be Christians in our own strength and to realize, I can't do this unless God enables me to do this. He wants us to walk in the realm of the supernatural. So that... We can say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
He's saying, I want you to get to a place where you realize I simply cannot do this. Not to become cynical and say, I can't do it, but to say, Lord, I'm going back to Beatitude 1. I'm poor. I'm poor. I'm a beggar. But Lord, I thank you that you've promised if we ask in faith, we can have everything that we need. And I need your mercy right now. I need it if I'm going to be able to do what you've called me to do. (laughs) Now, Christ's last section continues this theme of radical mercy ministries, and it begins in chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret and your Father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. Now, four times Christ speaks of reward. And we're going to look at that in just a little bit, the incredible rewards that the Lord gives. But we're going to look right now at this whole thing of doing things in secret. This is really a test. You can obviously do mercy ministries in public as well. But he's saying this is a true test of authentic Mercy ministry. Can you do the mercy ministry where Jesus or the Father alone sees that mercy ministry and it brings you delight? You don't have to have other people noticing what you're doing. If you can come to the place where it delights you to serve the Father, you have laid hold of the grace that is in this beatitude in rich measure. Now, this may be so beyond our ability to accomplish that it may seem like it's not worth even pursuing. But the reality is, if you've really listened to Beatitude number one sermon, the reality is we have to do this every day of our lives, every moment of our lives. We're going as beggars who cannot do it on our own. We receive from the Lord. And then when we blow it, we go to Beatitude two and we confess that sin before the Lord and we get back up and Beatitude one, we receive from the Lord all over again. And when it doesn't seem worthwhile to be training for the spiritual Olympics of mercy, uh, we, we say, Lord, help me to have the attitude of meekness that's willing to have you train me on this. And when you wonder if it's worth having Jesus as a coach because he keeps pushing you and pushing you and this spiritual Olympics preparation, you say to the Lord, Lord, give me a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Give me such a passion that I will not give up. I want to persevere. But it's really not about your trying harder. It's about a willingness for you to reach out your hand like Corey Ten Boone did and say, Lord, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to extend mercy. It's getting out of the boat with Peter And walking on the proverbial water and saying, Lord, I want to watch you come through on my behalf. And I tell you, when you do it, when you start living the Beatitudes, you have the joy of seeing the supernatural happening over and over again. Even in the simplest matters, you come to the Lord for wisdom. Say, Lord, I want to pull my hair out with my kids. I don't know what to do. But I know you have promised and you're a God who cannot lie that you will give wisdom to all who need. So I'm just expecting you're going to give the wisdom. You go in there not knowing what to say. And as you start talking, sure enough, the Lord opens things up. You find the joy of the supernatural being lived out in your life. Now, let me end very quickly pointing out the incredible blessings that God pours out into the lives of those who are merciful. And the first blessing is that we... I should put it the opposite, that those who deserve retribution cannot control your heart. That's an incredible blessing. James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So Jesus is not saying, roll over and be a doormat, roll over and die. No, he is saying, conquer through mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Paul said the same thing in Romans 12, and I've quoted it several times in this sermon. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The whole chapter lists a whole bunch of ways in which you can overcome evil with good. And when you get to the place when people can no longer control your heart and make you miserable and angry, wow, that's a great place to be at. It's a blessing indeed. You have conquered hate with mercy. You've triumphed over judgment. 
Now, that leaves me a second blessing, definitely related, but that is that it, it conquers our unruly hearts and brings joy. Proverbs eleven seventeen says, The merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. Okay? So when you're merciful, he says, you're doing good for your own soul. It brings God's blessing into your lives. It brings happiness into your life. But when you do the opposite, you're cruel, you bring yourself misery. Even to your very flesh, you bring that misery. Proverbs 14, 21, very similar. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. So he's, in terms of parallelism, he's saying that... that um, If you despise somebody in your heart, automatically you know you don't have a disposition of mercy. That's a check immediately. Oh, Lord, where does this despising come from? I need your mercy right now uh, for this moment. God says, happy is the one who is merciful to the poor. So mercy has an impact upon us inwardly. It takes away the poison of bitterness and anger and all of the other negative emotions. Thirdly, I've given 11 passages, which I won't go through that show the mercies we receive from the Lord when we're merciful to others. Psalm 18, verse 25, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. So God's going to give you all kinds of mercies in your life. Like yesterday, you know you deserved a speeding ticket, but God spares you, okay? He's showing mercy in your life. Yesterday you did something that really deserves to be shouted from the housetops and written in all the newspapers where you cover your head in shame, but God spared you, okay? That's His mercies in your life. And He says that it's through the the mercies of the Lord that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. James 5 speaks of healing in our lives. That's a mercy. We don't deserve it. 1 Corinthians 11 implies the same. Now, if you take the opposite, and we won't take the time to do it, of all of the miseries that we listed earlier, just take the opposite of that, you can see, wow, there's an incredible amount of blessings God promises to those who show mercy. And then finally, we find regained power over Satan. The ancient Christian writer Chrysostom said, mercy imitates God and disappoints Satan. Why does it disappoint Satan? Because he doesn't have a handlebar on your back that he can manipulate and control you and move you. He tries to grab onto you. There's nothing there to grab onto. That's why it disappoints Satan. This is substantially what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. He told them to forgive that brother who had repented. Now, you know the brother, he was engaged in pretty scandalous sin. He was living, shacking up with his stepmother. It was incest. And uh, they hadn't disciplined him. Well, finally they discipline him, and he repents. He shows God's grace in his heart. He repents, and they won't let him back in. And uh, he begs them, please forgive me. And they say, no, we don't want to have anything to do with you. You're an embarrassment. You're such a louse. Stay out of our lives. And Paul says, what are you doing? The purpose of discipline is for restoration. You need to bring that person in and show him mercy. And here's the reason they have to show him mercy. He says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. See, Satan's always looking for ways to take advantage of him. Satan was taking advantage of the Corinthians first because they were not exercising discipline and then next because they were too harsh in their discipline. But he's always looking for ways to take advantage of us. And he knows if he can get you upset and angry and frustrated with somebody's backbiting against you, somebody's slander that they've done against you, or some personal hurts, he's got a handlebar on your back that he's going to be able to control you with. Or if he can get you to take sides in in an offense that's none of your business, but you're, you're taking offense because this other person is offended, He knows he's got a handlebar on your back that he can control you with. Christ calls us to the happiness of being merciful so that we may obtain mercy. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father God, I lift up this, your congregation, to you and pray that the truth and the reality of this beatitude and these other scriptures that we have looked at would be richly manifested in our lives. 
Please spare us, Father, from any blindness, any ways in which uh, Satan would seek to divert us and keep us from entering into the blessing of the Lord, which makes us rich. And you have said in Proverbs that you add no sorrow with it. Please, Father, may this be a congregation filled, full to overflowing with your happiness, your joy, your blessing, because we are a people of mercy. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.